Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends. This is Chris, your host, and welcome to episode 4-365 of the Run Run Live podcast. Today, we chat with our friend Steve Hailstone about his experience as a runner having a heart attack. Yeah, I wanted to get Steve on to talk through his experience because I thought we might be able to save some lives. Seriously, it's well known, a well-known fact that we endurance athletes think that we are indestructible. And this is not the case. We are typically healthier and fitter over the long arc of our lives, but we are still susceptible to the same risks everyone else is, including heart disease. And in Section 1, I'll talk about how it's not that much of a leap to go from a marathon to an ultra and give you some thoughts on how to do that. Maybe I'll write a book on that. In Section 2... I talk about how we get into and out of mental slumps. And one of the things about mental slumps, whether you are religious or not, is the concept of free will. You have free will. You are free to think what you want. With that free will comes the responsibility to know what it is that you're going to do with that free will. You've been invested with this great gift. It's up to you to use it. Yeah, so it's been a couple of weeks since we last talked. I believe I was headed into the Groton Road Race weekend last time. We ended up getting a beautiful spring day, and the races, they all went off without a hitch. And since I was not race director this year, I had the choice of either running in the morning, 6 a.m. tranche, with the race director's cut of the race that I invented 10 years ago when they made me a race director, or actually running the race itself. The 10K goes off in early afternoon, around noon. And I couldn't really decide. It was a conundrum. And then I had a brainstorm. I just would run both, of course. And then when I I told the other folks that this, I had this epiphany, the other folks in the club, my friends, I said, I had this epiphany. They all rolled their eyes and told me they knew I was going to run both all along. And I was the last one to know, apparently. 
Since we opted to hold the race on the 30th of April, we were a week or so later into the spring, and it really made a difference. The course was beautiful. It greened up really nicely, and that that extra week really allowed the course to green up just enough. Groton is such a pretty town. Coming out of my strong spring cycle and not really going hard at Boston, I was able to perform well in both of my 10Ks. Maybe I'll invent a new thing, the Groton Double. Still, I was a bit beat up after doing all that manual work, setting up the race, and then racing twice over the weekend. So Monday I felt a bit like I should have more naps in my life. You know, I'm a white-collar worker. And it made me consider that maybe I'm getting soft. Maybe I need more general labor in my life. After Groton, I wanted to start in with the mountain climbing plan that Teresa and I had come up with. Unfortunately, I did not calculate that you really can't get into the White Mountains of New Hampshire until June. I mean, you can get into them, but only if you're going to be skiing. Washington still has 30 feet of snow in Tuckerman's Ravine. It's a very dangerous time to hike, actually. So I've just been doing a lot of trail running and trying to stay fit. I've been taking Teresa out with me on the trails when I can, and we signed up for this race this weekend in Connecticut that I will talk more about in the outro. One of the books I'm reading is The Magic of Thinking Big by David Schwartz. And this is a classic, this is a funny book. It's a classic, breathless self-help book from 1959, and it's great. I mean, comically great. It's full of all the old-timey storytelling and phraseology of that era, and it's basically a self-authored book from this guy's speeches and programs, and it kind of went that version of viral in those days. And one of the quaint things he talks about is people who are suffering from excusitis, Everyone has an excuse as to why they can't be successful or live the life they want. They're too old, they're too young, or they're undereducated, or they're inexperienced. And he calls this excusitis. <laughs> and he talks about how, you know, it's all in your head and how to flip it over and make those excuses strengths. He talks about what I would call feeding the good dog, meaning reinforcing those positive thoughts so your subconscious acts on them. And I also read through a series of early excerpts on government. Yeah, you might wonder why. I I get it. I wonder why sometimes myself. One of my habits here uh, is to rescue old books. And one of my daughters was recycling some textbooks from school. And one of those books was The Great Works, one of those surveys on great writing. And I rescued it. I always have three or four books going at a time. So in there, I read some Aristotle on why government is not really what we want. Nobody wants a government, but a natural emergence of a bargain we make to trade our independence for security. And I read Thomas Hobbes on the natural rights of man written in the 1600s, uh, and then the Declaration of Independence that cribs heavily from Thomas Hobbes with its rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And of course, they never really meant total equality. They meant political equality. To get total equality, you'd have to force everybody into this weird middle state by hobbling the exceptional and lifting the less exceptional, and this would bring civilization to a grinding halt. And that's a dynamic we still work with today. Where do we draw that line between independence and equality? 
And I also read an interesting piece by Alexis de Tocqueville. He was always bad-mouthing the Americans. He was a French guy that toured America back in, I think, the late 1700s, 1800s. But he always talked about how Americans are never happy with what they have. And that's true. It's our strength and our weakness. And as I get older, I'm getting better at being happy with what I have. Even in stressful times, I'm quite content. I picked up an old notebook that I had laying around, and I found that I had been listing things that I was grateful for as an exercise. And the first entry read, number one, friends and mentors. Number two, books. Number three, sweat. Number four, my daughters. Number five, my old dog, Buddy. So we've all got a lot going on in our lives, a lot to think about, but we've got a lot to be grateful for as well. So feed that good dog, fertilize the positive. You know, what are five things that you are grateful for today? On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Training for a 50K or a 50 miler for marathoners. So, you're a bit bored with racing marathons. You want to step up? Try a new distance? How do you go from 26.2 to 30 or 50 miles? Well, my disclaimer here is that I am not an ultra runner per se. I have and do run ultra distances occasionally. I've never gone more than 50 miles. I know I could do a 100 miler, but I have no desire. Maybe someday I will. I think my basic aversion to going super long is the the time it requires. Not the training time, just the running time. I have run the very difficult Vermont 50 miler, and I think I did it in just over nine hours, if I remember, which... I understand to be a decent time for that race. I can tell you how I train for it and why. I have friends who ask me, how do I train for an ultra? Specifically, how do you step up from marathon to the ultra distance? And I'm going to tell you how I did it, and you can decide if that makes sense for you. And my summary would be that stepping up from a road marathon to a 50K is a pretty small step. Hey, if you take one or two wrong turns in a marathon, you'll get that extra five miles. It's not a big leap. Stepping up to a 50-miler, yeah, again, it's quite manageable. It's double the distance, but the intensity is much lower. So if you're rolling out of a quality marathon cycle, you should have no problem running a 50K. And you can also use that fitness to get to 50 miles in one training cycle. The challenge. There are some things to consider. First thing, trails versus roads. Racing a road marathon is an entirely different beast than running an ultra-distance race on the trails. It's not just the distance and time. Typically, these ultra-distance events are mostly trails with varying degrees of difficulty. If you're not a trail runner, the simple fact that the race is on trails makes it 20 to 40% longer and harder. If you are moving up from a road marathon to a trail 50K, 
you're going to have to learn how to run trails versus roads as part of that bargain. Second thing is slowing it down. Moving up to the ultra distance means you must learn how to slow it down. I used to joke that if I was running a three-hour marathon, then a 50-miler would take like six hours, right? Wrong. You can't, or at least most humans can't, hold a race pace effort over difficult terrain for that long. You have to figure out a pace that you can maintain for twice as long as you would in a road marathon and more. You have to take your available fitness and figure out how to spread it out over the distance and time of the ultra. And this means learning how to slow down. How much slower? Typically a full two minutes per mile slower. And this also means learning how to strategically hike. Third thing is you have to learn how to eat. Yeah, in a marathon, you can manage your nutrition to have peak energy throughout the race to support that race pace effort. You can supplement sugar to keep your fires burning. If you're fast enough, you don't even dip into your fat stores that much. In an ultra, there's no way to just burn purely sugar. Your body has to learn how to burn fat. You still need calories. You have to train your body to eat while running And I don't mean shooting a goo, I mean taking real food early and often. The goal is to keep the calories coming so that your furnace is always fed. Next thing is summertime. Many of the ultra distance races tend to be warm weather races. And if you're not a warm weather runner, this can be a challenge. You must learn to run in such a way as to keep your core temperature within reason And you learn how to keep fluids and electrolytes coming into your system. Many ultras are lightly supported. This means you must learn how to carry your provisions with you. Can you run with a full water pack on your back? Can you run with with two handhelds and a pack of some sort? These are skills that you might need to learn. Finally, it doubles up the abuse. If you have issues with chafing or blisters or injuries in a marathon, those are going to be twice as bad in an ultra. Foot care, or lack thereof, probably causes more DNFs than anything else. The combination of uneven trails, hot weather, and mucky ground can cause your feet to get significantly abused. So how do you train for this? Well, the summary is that while the distance is manageable, you also have all these little ancillary skills that you need to pick up to make the ultra distance successful. The good news is that you can keep it simple. Like everything else in our sport, you can overcomplicate training for an ultra. It's really not that difficult to figure out. You just need to get more volume and learn how to manage some new skills. If you look up the training plans online or from the magazines, you might end up Confusled. Yes, confusled. I'm going to simplify that for you. It's not that difficult. If you have trained for a marathon using an advanced plan of any kind, you can use that same familiar cadence to train for an ultra. In an advanced plan for a marathon, let's say it's a three month plan. In those three months, you'll have a series of two or three week waves increasing intensity with a step-back week in between to recover. You can do the same exact thing 
to step up to an ultra. Instead of speed and tempo during the week, do other ultra and trail-specific training, like long hills and doubles. Instead of capping out your long run in the 20 to 24-mile range, go up to 30 or 35. Same cadence as a marathon plan, you just modify the workouts. For the weekly cadence, all I tried to do when I was doing it was get more volume on the trails. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'd do doubles. Doubles are where you run twice a day, in the same day. This is one way to train your legs for the volume of an ultra and to adapt to running on tired legs. A double could be five-mile trail run in the morning, then another at lunch, or it could be run at lunch and then in the evening. You're basically trying to squeeze in more volume during the week. I didn't do any dedicated speed work or, or tempo, except for occasional long hill tempo reps, either uphill or downhill, just as part of a trail run. And a lot of the plans you'll find will have you doing back-to-back multi-hour long runs. And I found that to be just miserable and really increase injury risk. So instead, I took Saturday as a rest day and went super long on, and slow on Sundays. The way I did this was all on the trails behind my house. And I have a nice 10K-ish loop with some decent elevation gain and a nice mix of technical single path and double path. And that's a great analog for most ultras. To teach myself to slow down I, and how to eat, I worked this into my 10K loop. One of the ways to slow down in ultras is to hike the uphills. And I say hike on purpose because it's not a walk. There's a specific mechanical action where you lean forward, you get low, and you swing your arms for momentum. You're still moving at three or more miles per hour, but you're using a different muscle set for this propulsion, and your running legs get rested. And I would set my watch alarm to go off every 20 minutes. And every 20 minutes, I would walk and force myself to eat something and drink something. And each time I came back to the house, I could fill up my bottles and keep on going. Using this methodology, I was able to work up to six loops of this 10K-ish trail course for my longest outing before I tapered into the 50-miler. So somewhere between 30 and 35 miles over the course of a three-month cycle was my long run. And that was plenty for the race. And it ended up being about six hours, maybe. And I was able to train my body to burn fat very efficiently. I was able to train it to adapt to the long trail run in the summer and eat and digest on the run. So summary, you can step up from a marathon to a 50K or a 50 miler easily in a normal training cycle. I found the training in a way relaxing. Instead of intense speed and tempo training on the road, I just did a ton of long, enjoyable miles out on the trails. It's quite doable, especially if you're exiting a quality marathon training cycle. Just slow it down. Have some fun. And now for today's featured interview. Yeah, so Steve, why don't you tell us uh, who you are and what you do? Okay. I'm 54 years old. Grew up in Southern California. Wow. Left after high school into the Air Force for six years. I spent two tours in Korea, just uh, peacetime there, and really enjoyed the people. Came back, met my wife now, uh, met her in between tours. 
And so uh, we were living in the D.C. area at that time. Got my orders to go back to Korea, and I thought, well, take her with me. Well, that was a little premature. So I made a proposal, and she said, well, not I can't say yes, but I don't want to say no. So let's just hold off for a little bit. So uh, the romance bloomed then during the the tour in Korea. There you go. She played it right. Yes. (laughs) In high school, I ran track and cross country freshman and sophomore year. And then I didn't continue after that. I had some niggling knee issues that I wasn't sure about. I think I had an attitude as well. Yeah. And I stopped running until I got back in the Air Force. And then I started running for a little while. And I stopped, got married. My old, oldest son was born. I started running again, got a little too ambitious and hurt myself and stopped running for a while. Then really, it wasn't until my second son went off to college and joined the cross country team that I thought, yeah, I really would like to be running. So that's really where I've picked up now. Is uh, When you're in the service, though, they make you run. Right? Don't they have this sort of daily get up and run thing? Not so much in the Air Force. In the Army, perhaps. Air Force and basic training, you do a lot of that. You run in formation because you're always late. Right. So, 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 so um, I don't remember you from way back in this sort of online running community thing from for like 10 years now. Don't I remember no. you talking with Steve uh, Runner? No. Nope, nope. I was not running 10 years ago, so I really didn't start again. It's about been about five years. Right, so you're sort so, of off and on, off and on, off and on, right? And now on, yeah. Now on. Well, but, then a little interruption last year. Yeah, so the interesting thing that I wanted to talk to you about, because I have a lot of people who um, I know who are in my age group, which is your age group, and there's this point where things start to happen. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they're one of the very common things is sort of this heart issue. One yeah. an arrhythmia myself a couple of years ago. Basically, it was exercise induced. Right. Okay. So just from running too much. Right. My heart kind of got weird. But I also know a lot of guys like Dave McGilvery. Right. Who was close to having a heart attack. He had a three quarter blockage. Right. Yeah. So you see a lot of that because the runners in their minds believe that they if they run, they cures everything else right they don't have to have a good diet that, that uh, i had people sleep, yeah know. i had people who posted that after i thought we were immune she said <laughs> yeah, no yeah exactly and that was one of the things back in the it was funny i saw i was at the dump today you're from the east coast so you know what i mean when i say I was yeah at the dump yep i'm dropping off my trash and there was a book now they have that little room where you can return stuff and Mm-hmm. Take stuff, sort of a drop-off place for stuff that's not 100% used. Yeah, up, but there's kind of borrow and lend. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a book in there, and I look at it. It's, it's uh, Jim Fix, uh, the complete book of running. I go, oh, oh yes. There you go. And now he dropped out of heart attack, right? Yes, he heart did. Yeah. While yep. training, and that, so he ended up being sort of a cruel punchline to the whole 70s jogging running movement. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, so because it had nothing to do with the exercise, it had to do with he had a. Uh, hereditary had had basically had heart disease so the heredity piece is kind of interesting because i was 52 when i had my heart attack and so that's where all the doctors go oh it's in your family so therefore everybody's doomed right and my reading since then is well maybe it's not heart disease that's hereditary it's something else and that's been an interesting learning experience Yes, and that's why I wanted to tap you here so sure. we can save some lives, right? So the, Hope so. The short story is that you took up running again later in life, and, mm-hmm. and at some point you had a heart attack. Mm-hmm. 
And did this happen while you were running? No. Let me back up a little bit earlier. My wife had a cancer diagnosis about 2002, somewhere around there. We went the natural route. We changed our eating habits into raw vegan and did a lot of juicing and things like that. You start out well-intentioned and then you don't keep to the plan all of the time. Right. But generally speaking, we thought we did okay. But one of the shortcuts that I used to take is I would pack in my lunch fruit, lots of fruit. So I would have two bananas, an apple, an orange, a pear, maybe some carrot sticks, like every day. I got into what I didn't realize was just hyping up my sugar levels. Now, thinking I was doing something healthy. So January, mid-January last year, I'd gone out for a three-mile run. And about that three-quarter mile mark where I should have started feeling like I had caught up with my breathing. It was smoothing out because when you first start out, you're just kind of getting your breathing under control. And it didn't get under control. And it seemed kind of odd. So I stopped and I walked a little bit and I rested and I started running again. And I felt the same way. And I I thought, I'm going to cut this short. (laughs) So it felt like you were fighting the run. Yeah, that's a good thing. It's like I, it felt like a bad day. Yeah, like you're just heavy that day, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, did you or do you wear a heart rate monitor? I didn't then, no. Okay, so you really had no baseline to know whether your heart rate was high or low. Right. Did you notice your heart rate doing anything different? No, I just felt like I couldn't breathe right. Yeah, just sort of oppressive, like a weight on you. Well, I don't even know if I would say that I felt like a weight on me. I just felt like, um, gosh, I'm just not there. Okay. So what I'm trying to tease out is if somebody's out running or doing mm -hmm. something and they want to know if the symptom they're having is something they should worry about, how would you isolate that from just another day with bad sleep? Well, see, here's a little bit of a mystery. Okay, so I start to think, is there something wrong with my heart? It did occur to me. I didn't feel a heaviness. But I just felt this, something's not right. I had had a bad cold at Christmas time. And I thought, maybe there's something in my lungs. I was not feeling a weight. So here's a warning is, you're not necessarily going to feel a weight. Or pain. There's no... I had no pain. pain. Nope, no pain at all. Just sort of a tiredness, huh? Yeah. So I thought, well, maybe it was a bad day. So I went out again on Sunday morning. I thought, I'll just go out for like a mile and three quarters around the neighborhood, across the street, and I will, I'll see if it's better. It wasn't any better. I thought, okay, I better take this seriously. So, doing the right thing, I called my doctor, made an appointment first thing Monday morning, probably saw her Tuesday, and uh, everything was checking out. There were no warning signs. Okay, what's really going on? So, she said, we'll take some blood tests. Blood tests came back normal. We'll take a chest x-ray just to rule that out. That came back normal. So the next thing on the schedule was we'll schedule a stress test. So that was scheduled for February 21st. Now, a little additional story here is on January 1st, my wife's cousin, who was 51 years old, dropped dead from a heart attack. Here it is. It's coming up on the weekend prior to the end of January. And probably Friday, I started feeling something but didn't know. Wish I had checked it out. But I was just feeling weird and maybe some aches, but nothing really hurt. I just felt weird. Saturday kind of went along. Okay, Sunday was at church. We had a big uh, meal thing after church, and I was cleaning up, and I just, just wasn't feeling great. So went through the rest of Sunday. Okay, I got up Monday morning, felt okay when I woke up, 
But from the rest of the day, things just went downhill. And uh, I went to my morning routine, got in the car, drove to work. Walking to the front door just felt kind of, I don't feel good. And by this time, you know, I had some pain in my neck and my shoulders, classic signs that should have said, Steve, something's wrong, but it just wasn't clicking. And I thought, well, see, I don't see my doctor again for a little while, so I'm going to go see my nutritionist chiropractor person, see if she can help me out. So I go into work and I sit down and I feel okay. And then we had a meeting at 930, walked about 20 feet and I felt awful. So I said, guys, I'm leaving at 1030 for a doctor's appointment and I'm going to take my stuff home with me and work from home. So I went to the doctor and she said, hmm, something's off with your sugar, she says. I thought, okay, whatever. (laughs) I go home and just kind of take it easy. I tried to do some work, felt just terrible. And I, I don't even know how to describe how I felt. I wasn't feeling sick to my stomach. I just felt the areas in my back and my neck were just really bothering me a lot. So I'd lay down and I'd feel okay. So it wasn't until eight o'clock that night I thought I need to get to bed early. I'm just, yeah. I'm not sure what's going on. So I go upstairs and I laid down and I started to feel sick to my stomach. So I called my wife up here now. I don't think I will, will ever go anywhere without a phone. <laughs> yeah. We have a big old house. And so we're, I'm on one end, she's on the other. I call her and I say, I don't feel well. I really feel bad. And she, she comes up and she said, well, maybe you're catching a bug. So the feeling passes and she leaves and I lay back down and immediately I start to feel sick to my stomach again. And I called her again. I said, I think I need to go to the hospital. So she goes and gets the car ready and the hospital's five minutes away. And by that time, I almost threw up on my way to the car. I just was really feeling ill. So all of the things like shortness of breath, I didn't know what shortness of breath felt like. I would take a deep breath and I'd say, this doesn't feel like shortness of breath. So I'm feeling this pain in my chest. I don't feel shortness of breath. Well, by that time, I think I was feeling shortness of breath. And I walk into the emergency room and I'm kind of stooped over, feeling like (laughs) I'm ready to croak. And they sit me down, they wheel me into a room, they hook me up with things and they say, sir, you're having a heart attack. So that's all that led to it. Now, looking back, I felt like I had done everything right. I felt funny. I went to my doctor. Twice. Twice. And nobody caught what I was going through. Yeah, so those are some of the interesting things. What did it end up being? Was it a blockage? It was. There's an artery called the widow maker that goes down to the lower part of the heart. Yeah. And that's what was blocked. Okay. So they said I was very fortunate to survive that. And the only way they'll pick that up is on an MRI, right, or a stress test? I wonder. What they always do is they hook you up to an EKG, and they can see some abnormalities there. Yeah. Stress test, I'm not exactly sure. Well, I did eventually have one of those just because I was feeling weird last fall and just wanted to rule some things out. But I've heard of other people with 100% blockage of other arteries that aren't fatal yeah. at that point. So they whisked me up to Bethlehem, which is north of here, about 30 minutes, and had a nice ambulance ride, and they took me to a cath lab and inserted a stent. And so that, and that has kept things flowing since then. That's the story there as to just what exactly happened. Yeah, so when you're talking to these guys, you know, it's just a lifetime of, to get to having a blocked artery, it's just a lifetime of um, accumulation. That's the question I so much wanted to answer was, what led to this? And I'm the youngest of five. All my siblings are going crazy saying, what happened? (laughs) Yeah. How, How can we avoid this? Yeah. And I had no idea what to tell them. I don't know. My dad had heart disease, but he never had a heart attack. 
His father dropped dead at 63. And I think his father before him maybe had a heart attack. So, yeah, there is something in the family. But the cardiologists, at that point, they want to see you get better. They don't really want to figure out what happened. Right. I don't want to say don't want to. It doesn't seem that that's their focus. No, doctor, it really isn't. But, I mean, if you... In the conversations you've had and the research you've done, how much do you think is lifestyle-based versus just it was your your time, right? Well, a couple of things on that. So while I was in the hospital, I was listening to Trail Runner Nation, a podcast I enjoy, and they were talking about the change in the dietary guidelines that were issued from 2015. And Dr. Mark Kukazella, he advises the Air Force on their fitness program, and he's made a big splash in his community and has a very widely viewed YouTube video of him running barefoot, like he's the perfect form and all of that. He just ran his 30th consecutive Boston Marathon sub three hours. Pretty impressive. He just turned 50. He was on there and he was talking about the dietary guidelines and he said a lot of athletes, especially runners, as you hinted at earlier, they think they can get away with things because they're running. The problem is a lot of them are pre-diabetic and don't even know it because they are carb loading all the time. They're overeating carbs thinking, I need to carb load. And he said it's kind of the opposite. You know, the older you get, the more sensitive your body becomes to carbohydrates and it can't. Now, that's why people gain weight in their later years is because mm. they're eating so many carbohydrates. Insulin says, oh, store that as fat. <laughs> we'll use it later, maybe. Yeah. I mean, there's <laughs> so, a lot of process crap, too. Yeah, know, so. yeah. So all of the process stuff. And I think when you come down to it, I mean, carbohydrates alone, are, I don't think, are the sole culprit. Inflammation. So what if kind of taken away from the things I've been learning is one, I really need to have a low carbohydrate diet. Now that's where I am. My probably what was passed along in my family is an intolerance to carbohydrates, which leads to inflammation and then kind of heart disease becomes an inflammatory disease. So what did I love? I loved chips. Mm. <laughs> so I ate a lot of fruit, so I was getting lots of sugar. And uh, I would eat lots of chips. So all of those safflower oils, sunflower oils, cottonseed oils, uh, whatever they cook it in, are all inflammatory oil. Unfortunately, they produce the wrong effect in us. And the heart attack was basically plaque had built up in my arteries. Because there was inflammation there, it ruptured. Yeah. So kind of a takeaway, I would say, is there probably would be some good numbers for people to check in on and see how they're doing. One would be you can get your lipid panels, but they don't tell the whole story. Look for inflammation markers or see what your blood glucose levels are. Measure for diabetics is your HbA1c. And there's a professor, Tim Noakes. Yeah. He said that's probably one of the most important numbers everybody should know is where that number is. It's not the only one they should know, but he said every, everybody should know that because that's letting you know whether or not you're wading into dangerous territory. So. Interesting. But you're not an obese guy, right? You never. No. Really at, a... So I'm six foot two. I was probably 185 to 188 yeah, at, so the, at the time of the heart attack. Yeah, most people would consider that spot on, right? Yeah, so now I'm about 165. So, yeah, yeah. And that was just changing my diet. That was basically eliminating car- a lot of carbs and yeah, just yeah. being careful. So since you seem to have caught it pretty early, or it was one of those not an acute event, but more of a slow burn event, that were they able to keep the heart itself from being damaged? I don't know that it might have sustained some damage. 
So they measure that. They call it, a, oh, I always get this term mixed up. It's the EF, some extraction fraction. I don't know. That doesn't sound quite right. Others will know. But after the heart attack, it was 30%. Yeah. And they said normal is like 60, 65%. So for several weeks, I wore a external defibrillator because if there was that much damage in the heart, in that damaged area, it could create an electrical impulse that would make your heart go, electrical system in your heart kind of go wacky. Yeah. So the alarm went off a couple of times, scared me to death. <laughs> I think it was because it was getting warmer and the diodes were, I was sweating and the diodes didn't Sweet know how to, out. didn't, yeah, yeah some, something. And so it caused me a little bit of a panic, but I felt okay. So I thought, okay, I think I'm all right. But why did they go off? The positive or negative correlation with um, exercise throughout this thing. Exercise was the right thing to do because, let's say, they tell diabetics, you really need to exercise because that activity is good to burn some of the sugar that's in your system. So in one sense, I was doing the right things. I just wasn't aware enough as to maybe what some danger factors were. The problem is Jim Fix didn't know what the danger factors were. My wife's cousin, she was overweight, so she had some danger factors, but plenty of people get beyond that. So after the heart attack, a very, very slow rebuild. You know, I go out for a 15-minute shuffle walk where I'm hardly walking 23-minute mile pace Yeah. because that's all I can handle, uh, and I'm exhausted. But eventually, you lengthen, and you very, 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 very slowly just keep walking. And so I built up to about three miles or so, and I was walking according to time. So you're wearing and the um, the heart rate monitor now? I wear a heart rate monitor for running now. And the reason for that is, let me build to that, or a little bridge of the app is, so I started running last year. I ran a 5K in July, ran another 5K in November. I was feeling pretty good, and I was just running according to how I felt, but I was running intervals. So uh, the first time in my life, I would run, you started out with, I would run for 30 minutes on the treadmill, and I'd walk for two minutes. Yeah. And then I would repeat that, and then slowly it kind of turned the tables. I was running for two minutes, I was walking for two minutes. I was running for three minutes, I was walking for two minutes, and I eventually had worked myself up to about running for five minutes and walking for a minute. And then something happened in October that I just felt different. And I was a little scared that something had gone back, like I'd stepped backwards, maybe some block, maybe there's more blockage. And so my sister-in-law's a nurse. She's overly concerned about my health, which is good because somebody needs to be. But kind of using that, I decided to just take some time off from running until I could get some answers, feel confident again, had a second catheterization in January. For Christmas, I decided to ask for a heart rate monitor for Christmas. Yeah. So the Wahoo went on sale. For <laughs> Wahoo Ticker X, for all of those who wonder what that is, I got that for Christmas. And when I felt comfortable to start running again, I decided that I was going to use Phil Maffetone's method, running at a maximum aerobic function, and really working at being kind to my heart and just slowly building an aerobic base. Yeah from that method and so that's that's what i've been doing yeah have you noticed uh it's a great piece of data to tell you when you're having off days have you mm -hmm. noticed that you know, when you might have a cold or something not yet maybe i'm not paying enough attention yeah well but it's because my rate is so low yeah. and that was the hardest thing was you take 180 minus your age 
And then yeah. because I'm on heart medication, take another 10 points off. And I tried to go out there before my birthday. I tried to run continuously for a mile and a half at 117 beats a minute, and I, I couldn't do it. I wow. felt like I was running in place basically by the third lap. So I had like three half-mile laps. Yeah. By the third, th- I could not keep it below that rate, and I was almost running in place. And I couldn't that's too keep low. Yeah, that's too low. I have one of the world's lowest heart rates. That's my biking zone. <laughs> well, running, here's running zone two is up in the 120s. So what I decided to do was I decided I would do a run walk. I would program my phone to tell me when I had entered it into certain zones. So I have it zone zero, one, and two. So I would uh, run until I get to zone two, and then I would walk until I get to zone zero, and then I would run. So that's what I've been doing for the last couple of months. Yeah, bring it up and down. Yeah. And so I've been monthly been doing a math test and uh, seeing some improvement. And then I did something weird last week where I just decided to run harder during those runs. And my time improved by a minute. <laughs> right. That's <laughs> thought, oh, that's it. I, was, yeah. I got so used to running so slow. I was yeah, afraid that for this 5K, I wouldn't know how to run fast. Yeah, but what you were doing is you were building aerobic base. So that's the, that's the <laughs> right. part that always surprises people. Yeah. That's the whole run slower to get faster thing. Yeah, yep. Yeah. All right. So I got to move you towards the exit here. We've been, All right. We've been prattling on too long. So what's the prognosis for the future? Everything seems to be good. When I had that catheterization in January, they said there was no additional blockage. And an area that was noted of being narrowed, they said it's not as narrow as was first thought. So the prognosis is good. I've always wanted to be one of those before and after stories. You know, you read a book, ah, I really want to be that person they'd feature in the book. And, uh, you know, it never quite worked out that way. But I feel like the Maffetone method for me seems like it it makes a lot of sense. And I feel comfortable even running slow, even in public and even walking. I think there are times I'm going to want to get out there and kind of go for a test drive. But things feel good. And it also brings a peace of mind. So. Yeah, and plus you've uh, adjusted your nutrition that to to a level that suits you better, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. So that that'll help over the long term as well. So good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully you get a help a lot more years in you, Steve. I hope so. But yeah. one one day at a time. <laughs> what uh, what would be your, your you know your top three takeaways or your advice for people based on your experience over the last couple of years? I would say one of the things I figured ignorance was bliss, and that that's wrong. It really would be get some base level as to what your health is like. If you go to your doctor, I would ask for them to find out what your HbA1c is. And then there's another for inflammation called the CRP, the C-reactive protein, just kind of a general marker for inflammation. And I think those are probably two really important things to be aware of. Other takeaways are you can overtrain and hurt yourself. <laughs> So find out what your body really likes. I would suggest reading one of the Maffetone books or he has an app now that takes you through a lot of the material on his books. And it's very helpful, helps give some guidance. The thing I like about Maffetone's overall approach to health, it's nothing really wacky or out of balance. It's just very common sense. And um, that's the genius of it. Yeah, we interviewed him. uh, Oh, did you? A while back, yeah. Okay. It's funny because every once in a while I'll see him on Skype. So Okay, very good. Bill, he's a character, that one. Yes. Um, all right. Third takeaway I'd say is try to make sure you're not dealing with too much stress in your life. And I know that's such a variable. You can't – everybody's got things that are stressors they get introduced that they didn't ask for. Like 
death in the family or something like that or, you know, rocky relationships. But I mean, it really is something that is kind of an unknown in the medical field. They just know it probably affects us poorly. They just don't know the role. Yeah. So <laughs> there's good stress and bad stress, right? Yeah. There's stress that you can deal with and put it to good use. And then there's overdoing it. All right. All right. I'm going to let you go. All right. Hey, thanks, thanks Chris. For your time. Hopefully this is useful for somebody, right? I hope so. All right. Cheers. All right. Bye-bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Seven ways to reboot your brain out of a slump. So what to do when you begin to doubt yourself. Sometimes you get into a mental slump. You feel trapped in a box. You have challenges and things just don't seem to be going your way. So how do you get out of that slump? There are times when a bad situation, a challenge, or a series of life hits can cause a downward spiral of negativity. You start to have a negative attitude that builds on itself. You begin to see all those things that can go wrong. You see a bleak future that is, in reality, a construct of your own mental state, you build a dark house of cards. And this is no way to live, stumbling under a dark cloud. If you consistently imagine a dark future, you cause that dark future to manifest. You guarantee its manifestation through your mental focus and reinforcement. When you worry about the bad things, the bad future state, you subconsciously ask your mind to validate that vision. Your mind, like a good clerk, heads back into the archives and drags out all the examples of where you have failed before. It constructs a dark tower of proof towards the inevitable future failure. It's self-reinforcing spiral downward into darkness. So stop! <laughs> Build a future vision of abundance, light, and joy. Drill that that vision into your brain. Number one, first, build a positive future vision. Stop wallowing in today's trouble. Stop imagining all the ways things can go wrong. Stop rehashing mistakes of the past. You can't change the past. You can change the future. You change the future by controlling what you do right now. Take a moment. Look five years out. Paint a picture of joy and peace that your life can be. Imagine it. Put yourself in it. Live it. Describe it. Write it down. Feed it every day as part of your habit, part of your routine. Second, write down all your strengths. What do you do well? What are you good at? What do you take pride in? What do people compliment you on? Make a list. Have your brain clerk scurry off and find examples of your strengths in action. Build an inventory of your strengths with examples and make those part of your routine. Third, write down what you're grateful for. Enumerate the good things in your life. No matter how dark you think your situation is, there is always some good. There is always something to be grateful for. Even the small things, the wind in the trees the bird song in the morning. These things are the magic dust to brighten your outlook. Make them part of your routine. 
forth to take the long view. Whatever situation you're in today is merely a footnote in a long life well lived. Don't worry about it. Do your best and work your plan. Do things and do them in ways that you want to remember in the future. Live the full span of your life in the context of today. Fifth, do the things today that you have to do every day to make the future positive reality manifest. Think those thoughts, do those things, lift those bricks that one by one build the future life you want. Create the routines and habits that support that vision. Sixth, learn from your personal challenges, the present ones. If you're in an uncomfortable state, more than likely you're growing. How do you learn from something that in the now seems dark and endless? Detach from the results and just work the process. If you have the right process, the results will take care of themselves. Maybe get coaching or community to help you sort out the lessons from the challenge. Learn from what doesn't work. Seventh, be of service. Help people. Approach every person, especially the difficult ones, as someone that needs your light. And let your light shine. So get up every day and execute these things as part of your routine, and not only will you find your way out of your current challenge, but you will build a future that is bright and abundant. You can't control what happens. The external world doesn't care about your feelings. You do control what you do, and to some extent what you think, and you control it today. You control your habits and routines, and you can use them to make your world, this world, our world, a better place. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, you have stumbled, clutching your chest, through to the end of episode 4-365 of the Run Run Live podcast. And you may have noticed that this episode was a week late. I apologize. I'm working with a startup out of California now, and my time to write and produce has been significantly impinged. I'm not traveling much, but paradoxically that means less writing, because planes were always my quiet space. And that's the first time I've missed a delivery date in 10 years, so you cut me some slack. I may have to take a vacation from the podcast this summer, and maybe just drop some ancient, some classic podcasts from the past onto the feed for a few months while I get some breathing room. Teresa and I are heading down to Connecticut tomorrow, Connecticut, to run a trail race. And she's going to do her first trail race and her first half marathon, as it turns out. And I am going to attempt doing a 50K. And that will be my first 50K, as it turns out. I don't have a Connecticut marathon yet either, so there you go. I was a bit at loose ends, so I jumped on this race. We'll see how it goes. And although the New England weather has made its traditional leap from 50 degrees to 95 degrees in one day this week, it's going to be in the 70s tomorrow. It looks like a nice 10K loop course with some technical bits and a lot of elevation. 
Hmm, elevation. I'm just planning to hike it. I'd be thrilled to get in under seven hours. So, like I said, it's my first 50K. Figure what the heck. Nice day for a hike. I'm thinking about taking a step back from racing and training this summer anyway. I'm leaning towards doing a sort of a 30-day program of just getting up in the morning and going for a run in the woods and just doing that for breakfast. I think that would be a nice, not only a challenge for me, but it would also give me some more free time to boot rather than just, you know, structured training for anything specifically. So I carted my old motorcycle out to the Honda fixer-upper place this weekend, and I had to roll it into the back of my truck and strap it in, which was a bit dicey. I made the uh, service manager's day by dragging in my 33-year-old motorcycle. Seriously, they were excited to see it and to work on it. So I'll, here's, I'm going to drop in the commercial the TV commercial for this series of motorcycles. Not my exact one, but the same series from 1983. The standing quarter mile. This machine is about to attack it. A motorcycle that can turn 65 cubic inches into an incredible amount of horsepower. The Honda V65 Magna. It's about to become the world's fastest production motorcycle. Pretty cool, huh? So, my friends, as we roll into the dog days of summer, what are your plans? What great mountains are you going to climb? What fabled beasts are you going to slay? What frozen hearts are you going to melt? Think about it. Send me an audio. I'll play it if it isn't too horrible. I had some Silicon Valley type ask me in a meeting recently, if you had all the money in the world, what would you do? And I'm not sure what that self-important prick... Wait, sorry, did I say that out loud? Sorry. I'm not sure what my West Coast brother was looking to elucidate, but my answer was that I'd drop everything and run across the country. But I'd like to change that answer. I'd like to add to it now. I'd like to change it to, I'd drop everything and grab a bunch of friends and run across the country. And that includes you. So meet me out back by the Winnebago and we'll get started. I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed. So hard it made him cry. Oh, there's my dog. Hold on, have to go get my dog. He doesn't like it when I talk without him. Just going to show you, he's still alive. I'm not faking it. Come on, you big hand in that. Come on. Just stand in the front lawn and bark at me. You gotta either come in or stay out. I'm not the cruise director here. Find something to do. Come on. I'm gonna close the door now. <laughs> oh, now you're okay. Come on, you can do it. Old time, I'll help you. Good boy. Good boy. What a good boy. Yeah, what a good boy. Okay. Now, can you be quiet with your, with your, 
toenails on the floor for a second? Can you do that? All right. He doesn't like to come up the stairs. He It scares him because sometimes his, his uh, back legs give out and he face plants on the stairs. So it, he likes me to come out and help him. Anyhow. 